This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to another edition of The Minefield. Well, Lead Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host as we go about negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. And Scott, good to see you once more. I, um, I would say that this is a show, you know, fortuitous is not the right word to use, um, given the circumstances that we find ourselves in and the nature of the topic today. But mm. we were planning on doing a show like this or about this for a long time. We have been planning for a long time. The Ramadan series probably got in the way a little bit. And now it's turned out to be kind of newly um, urgent in a way that none of us anticipated and we would frankly wish were not the case. That's true. But it's, I suppose it's good for the discussion in that it it adds dimensions to what we were going to speak about, I think, um, in a way that might have been absent were it not for the urgency of the moment. Have I, without giving anything at all away, described that accurately? Uh, you certainly have. Um, you're right. It is a show that I think we've really been wanting to do. Uh, just to kind of correct the record a little bit, it's not just the Ramadan series that got in the way. It was also some pretty unsavory uh, events that were coming out of Canberra that I think got in the way of... Oh, that's true, yeah. Yeah. Not, it's not that the fact that the Royal Commission into Aged Care, Equity and Safety wouldn't have demanded our attention at the time. But it just, you know, events coming out of Canberra were so febrile. The heat surrounding it really did, I think, beckon us to pay that a certain degree of attention. But I always thought, I always hoped, given the moral importance, I think, of aged care, given the nature, the thick dimension of our obligation to care for the elderly, given the claim that that has on our lives. I was always hoping that we were going to be able to circle back and say, you know, now that the air is a little bit clear, we can actually give this some of the attention, some of the focus that it deserves. But, of course, um, certain events in Melbourne have also overtaken us a little bit. And you're right, given this a fresh pertinence, a fresh dimension that uh, we really wish. I I had kind of assumed, Willie, that our COVID shows were in the past. <laughs> that was probably stupid of me. Well, too. do you know what? It's interesting you say that. Maybe this is for another episode, but I think that's part yeah. of the problem. Yeah, actually. I think that's right. I think that's yeah, right. Yeah. I, won't well, go, I won't go any further because, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but, but I think so, it's part of the problem. But, but what I will say is the fact that we are now talking about aged care again in the context of COVID which is, of course, a disastrous combination. Uh, it hasn't yes. been so far, we should point that out, at least not as we are having this conversation in real mm-hmm. time, but it could potentially be. But the fact that those two things have come together again, I think speak to the genuine structural malaise that underlies the whole issue of aged care in our society and, and in our political arrangements. Yeah. In other words, I, you know, I've spoken before about how really what COVID is is a great audit. And I feel like that's happening again. It shows Mm. up all of those little points of weakness that you have, the things that you haven't attended to. And aged care, I would say, fits firmly into that category. And we knew that even before the Royal Commission reported. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, As the death toll began to rack up, particularly in the second half of last year, remember that the first uh, really serious occurrences of unregulated, uncontrolled transmission took place in two aged care facilities in Sydney. And it seems like we're we're caught in this almost ominous symmetry 
between those two aged care facilities where it, well, it didn't exactly all began, but it was pretty bad uh, in March, April last year. And now we've got another two aged care facilities in Melbourne this year. But as the deaths began to rack up in aged care facilities in the second half of last year, I mean, that really was, you're right, that was the first premonition. That was the great resounding reminder that this is an aspect of our moral commitments, of our social life that have languished due to inattention, due to a degree of forgottenness to which we've allowed ourselves, we've given ourselves a degree of permission, I think, to forget the extent, the nature, the depth of these obligations. Um, And I would have thought that after the fact that three quarters of the deaths that Australia experienced last year were in aged care facilities, and then you have that the resounding second treatment of the Aged Care Royal Commission, which uh, you're right, Waleed, I think it confirmed what many of us have worried about, what many of us have feared, what anyone who has spent significant amounts of time in aged care, especially for profit or private sector, aged care facilities, um, something that's, that's bothered many of us for a long, long, long time. And certainly anybody who has worried about the condition, the treatment, the care that their loved ones have experienced or failed to experience. I mean, the Royal Commission should have been everything that we needed to know to kind of redouble our efforts as a as a community, as a society. But instead, it dropped in the lap of public attention at a moment when the public was looking elsewhere. And the latest outbreak in Melbourne is a an unwelcome, but I think an important opportunity to fasten our attention once again. I would just say, Willie, that one thing in particular, and I, I think we need to get to some of you, you referred to kind of the structural dimensions, the structural problems that afflict so much of aged care. I think one of the things that would have been relatively simple to remedy, uh, certainly over the last eight months, and yet uh, have not, and I'd love to get your thinking as to why this hasn't been remedied. Those who are aged care residents are in conditions of relative confinement. Uh, Those who have access to them are limited and are regulated. There's not a lot of uh, venturing out into the wider community uh, without a fair degree of planning and preparation and safeguards in place. But of course, it's the workers, it's the staff in aged care facilities that move in and out. Those staff we uh, learned repeatedly over the course of last year, and this was reinforced by the Aged Care Royal Commission, because the wages that they're paid are only slightly above minimum wage in order to supplement their appalling degree of remuneration, they often have to work across multiple aged care facilities, which means well, that the, so it's not just the level of remuneration, though. It's also the number of hours that the number of hours to them. So even if they were yes. on a good hourly rate, they, they wouldn't really be able to scratch together a living at one place under yes. current arrangements. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. But it's that simple fact then increases, enhances the likelihood of there being some transmission, some additional transmission from one facility to the other. And then on top of that, Waleed, on top of that, and I mean, I I don't want to exactly go into the reasons for this, but about a decade ago, a little bit more than a decade ago, I spent a significant amount of time assisting in and volunteering through a number of aged care facilities. And, you know, one of the things that the Royal Commission pointed out is that there really have been moments of neglect, of we could even refer to it as, I think, abusive and highly morally dubious behavior on the part of untrained or ill-trained staff towards residents. But the overwhelming impression that I had from the dozens and dozens and dozens of staff with which I had to do 
is that these are workers who are caught in a kind of common tragedy. The levels of remuneration, the scant hours that were afforded to them, the impossible conditions under which they were forced to work, and the high moral demand on their emotions, on their time, on their resilience. Just watching the turnover in staff over an extended period of time, it just struck me that so often staff and residents are caught in a system that is impoverished and mutually degrading. And to, to assign too much culpability, I think, to staff is to really get get the dimensions of the issue wrong. But for are staff, people doing that though, I, I don't feel like the the target is the staff. Really, I feel like the target right now is the federal government. And then you have for refusing to insist that staff be vaccinated in order to work. Well, with facilities. so there's the vaccination rollout question. Yeah. Then there's also the um the single. What's the, what do they call it? Single worker, single site, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what I mean. This this insistence yeah. that services from staff are exclusive to a primary place of work, which is a, a bit more of a complicated thing than perhaps we sometimes acknowledge. Um, and this is the point that the aged care minister Richard Colbeck has made that right. there are legal restrictions on the ability to do that. Although I think it's possible, and this is the point that Colbeck I don't think acknowledges, is that it's possible to get around those restrictions. And I, I, I'm not going to go down the wormhole here, but I did have a look at the case that he's referring to at the Fair Work Commission, where the union took a particular aged care home um, to Fair Work because they wanted to insist that their workers couldn't work anywhere else. And there were issues to do with not going through the relevant process in the workplace agreement that was there between staff and so on. That, so there were ways you could possibly get around that. There was an absence of a public health declaration that was enforceable. The employer or the aged care provider could hide behind. So there were, there were things to that. But it is also true that what we're talking about here is the criticism is directed at the federal government and the problem mm. they're trying to solve is not simple to solve, at least not in the short term. So can we make a distinction here? There is the question of the shortcomings in aged care over a long period of time that have been shown up in the Royal Commission. Yes. There is then also the question of the immediate response to a, the Royal Commission, but also the threat of COVID and the experience of COVID in aged care over the past year, where, where it, I think it is possible, or we at least run the risk of having unrealistic expectations of what might have been achievable. Um, at the federal government level. So, for example, that sort of um, transient casual workforce element, it's a problem. It's a very difficult problem to solve very quickly. Yes. Except via sort of emergency diktat, which mm. is what we're saying or what a lot of critics are saying the federal government should have done. But it's also the kind of thing that if they impose that when there was no community transmission, you can imagine a whole lot of staff being really yes. upset about it. <laughs> right. Exactly right. Yeah. And also, you know, you can do that by centralised diktat, but the reality is for that kind of transformation of a casualised workforce to take place, there also needs to be a training regime that undergirds it. I mean, one, one of the really, really troubling things over the last year um, is not just that relatively undertrained uh, and certainly underpaid staff have been forced into positions that are, I mean, institutionally vocationally, morally, immensely, immensely taxing and, uh, and, and in many respects sort of far strips, far outstrips their expertise. But the lack of, for instance, those who have necessary infectious disease control or transmission control mm. staff 
on site. Um, the fact that these sort of very fundamental things in any vulnerable facility or any vulnerable community, the fact that those are missing. But, but, but you're, you're right, Waleed. I mean, this also presumes a degree of professionalization of aged care workers that has taken place, for instance, over the course of the last three decades among nurses. But that's not the kind of thing that can be rectified overnight. It's not even the sort of thing that can be rectified over the course of a few years. And we Um, should point out that we can't assert that the federal government has responded with nothing. No, Because they did announce $17.7 billion over the next five years in response to the Royal Commission. Now, there is an argument that what the Royal Commission is asking for is closer to $45 billion over that period rather than 17.7. So that's a big discrepancy mm-hmm. um, and that we can have our arguments about that. Maybe we will with our guests. I don't know. But it's not nothing. But no, what we're looking it, at is the slowness of those wheels turning right? yes. in, a, in the context of an environment that is really, really fast moving. Yeah. Can I ask you, though, because mm-hmm. one of the things also that that increased amount of funding does presume or does necessitate is something like a – community-wide levy, which was recommended by one of the royal commissioners. Which they refused to do, yeah. Which, which the government has refused to do. Can I ask, I mean, this is something I think we're going to re- return to much more fulsomely later in the discussion, but where do you, what do you think about that? Where do you stand on the idea of a sort of a flat levy across the community? Have we discussed this before? I can't even remember. Um, my problem with this mechanism is that it always sounds like a good idea in each individual case, but in aggregate, you end up with a situation where there are just a million levies on a million different things. Mm-hmm. So the appeal of the levy for me would be that it makes a statement, like a public declaration about the fundamental importance of the concern of aged care. Mm. And it says to the people, when you pay your taxes, this is out of a solidarity to this particular group of society. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a great message. I just don't know at what point that you would say that isn't a great message in respect of something. So if I did it in respect of disability care or I did it in respect of something to do with children's health or I did, then at what point are you prepared to say, no, not worth making that statement, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. At which point you come back to the question of, well, is the levy really the appropriate way of doing it? I, I would err on the side of using the levy if only because of the level of systematic failure that the Royal Commission uncovered. Mm. And so the importance of that statement being made almost as an act of restitution um, mm. or something like that. Interesting. But, but I, I need to countenance that I'm wary. I'm wary of the levy becoming the new Royal Commission. You know, now basically whenever there's a, an <laughs> argument, we say, let's have a Royal yeah. Commission. Uh, the I'm, way that you register the moral seriousness of an issue is to, ha- is to uh, convene a Royal Commission. Yes, into and the yeah, way that you yeah, respond to something true. that needs more money is you impose a particular levy on it. You know, and you saw this with um, the idea of a debt and deficit levy all those years ago, right? This is a way of registering my political concern. I take debt and deficit seriously enough that I'm going to put a levy on that, right? The, the, yeah. I, I worry about that as a mechanism. I think it would probably be better if we were capable of doing sort of more thoroughgoing tax reform in um, in this country. But I, I think the combination of political self-interest and the political cycle and the way that media goes about talking about tax makes that very, very difficult. Yeah. That's interesting to me, Willie, because, I mean, I think, I think I'm with you about a concern over the proliferation of levies as a kind of fix-all whenever we find a hole that needs to be plugged. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, I also agree that that aged care probably 
doesn't quite qualify as one among many problems for which this could just be used as yet another solution. Sorry, are you saying it doesn't qualify as something that should have a levy or it's unique that and so I think for that reason it deserves a levy? Yes, that's precisely the it. Latter. I, I, the latter. Because I, I, I think to my mind something like a levy would be something more like the, the, the payment of reparations. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it would be a way of assigning an amount that registers emotionally, economically, culturally, the nature, the extent, the reach of, our, of the debts that we have incurred and the nature of our moral obligations. I guess one of the things that strikes me is that, especially with the decline in something like what might be called familial piety and with the erosion of certain forms of commitment to, say, in-family or even sort of more robustly in-community care, uh, and, you know, I mean, so, some of that is due to people no longer living near their parents. Some of that yeah. is so, – so, you know, I'm not saying that all these things are necessarily culpable. However, however, the obligations that we have to the elderly in our community are profound obligations. And the extent to which we have, first of all, outsourced them to third-party institutions, whether it be government or whether it be to private providers, and then the extent to which – uh, we've permitted or we've acquiesced or we've not profoundly objected to the further outsourcing of that care to for-profit providers and the extent to which our souls, if I can put it in this kind of pathetic way, the extent to which our souls have not revulsed to the point of, of intolerability at the prospect that those who are most vulnerable and those who are least worthy or who are most worthy of honor but least receiving the kind of care to which they are entitled. The fact that, that the elderly in our community have been primarily regarded as problems to be managed, holes to be plugged, issues to be contained, and if you like, quarantined from wider societal concerns rather than those who are most deserving of a kind of ongoing dignity, humanity, respect, and care. I think that is, that is a stain on society as a whole, and therefore... A levy becomes a way of us registering a shared commitment. Mm -hmm. It becomes a commitment to the common task of justice and dignity. And for precisely that reason, it becomes something that we must be conscious of paying rather than something that merely folds itself yeah. into the multitude of taxes that we already yeah. pay. So I agree, you know, you're articulating better than I did why I would agree ultimately with the idea of a levy. But I, I'm not sure I could go along with all of that analysis, even though I go along with large chunks of it, if only because when we say the phrase aged care, we are talking about such a diverse yes, series of institutions. Right? And so to put it down to our just our preparedness to turn our back on our familial obligations or our familial bonds, when actually a lot of these become institutions that are quite medicalised or kind mm. of need to be, that's mm. beyond the scope of care that you can reasonably ask lay people to do for their own family. Right. No, and so right. this this is part of the problem, I think. Whenever we have an aged care conversation, it's a bit incoherent because we don't differentiate a lot of these different aspects of it. And so I'm just a little wary of that. And then if you were to factor in the medicalised end of it, that's yeah. when you really are talking about probably the most actually vulnerable in the context of something like COVID. I think that's right. right. So I guess what I'm saying is the social critique that you're running, with which I agree substantially probably becomes the less relevant end of it 
in the context of something like vulnerability to COVID because actually it's the medicalised end that becomes, from everything I've been able to discern, the yes. most vulnerable, the most at risk. I know. Look, look, Walid, you're absolutely right. And we do need to differentiate between, say, residential aged care versus yep. in-community or in-family. And then the support that is then available to those who, who do care in family or within community. Um, you're also, of course, right that residential care then becomes particularly demanding when that becomes in, uh, increasingly institutionalized and therefore medicalized. But in the same way, I think, that we've seen such a radical internal transformation of the way in which medicine is practiced and the particular medical and what's sometimes called the psychosocial spiritual role that, say, nurses play in the provision of care. I think that also means that just because care is medicalized and professionalized doesn't mean it has to be simply, boldly, purely, sterilely institutionalized. So, so that, that's where any kind of shared community commitment to the enhancement uh, and the dignification of the quality of, of quote-unquote aged care, especially in its more residential and medicalized aspects, it really does have to involve that increase in training for those who are administrated, an increase in a redefinition, I think, of what it is that we expect, just how high it is that we expect that care, uh, the standards that we expect them to reach because of the attending value that we then place on those who are being cared for. So I, I, I agree with you, it becomes complex. I agree with you that we can't just throw all aged care in a single basket, but I think that means that the way that we think about it and the way that we want those different expressions of aged care to reflect a common communal commitment then need to be articulated very, very carefully. Mm, which becomes a very expensive proposition. Yes, yeah, it no does. Hence uh, the levy. Yes, this is The Minefield. <laughs> right. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, in which case, thank you very much for doing so. But you can also catch it at your leisure, so as a podcast, anytime you like, uh, or on the ABC Listen app, anytime you like, follow The Minefield. All right, Scott, who do we have? Well, we've got a fabulous guest. I'm particularly thrilled that we've got her. Barbara Barbosa Nevish is Senior Lecturer in Sociology at Monash University. She's been very, very uh, highly and with remarkable articulation and sophistication involved in discussing many of the aspects of treatment of the elderly coming out of uh, the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. She's written a number of very beautiful responses along with Narelle Warren to both COVID-19 uh, and also to the Royal Commission. It's wonderful, Barbara, to have you join us on The Minefield. Thank you for having me and thank you so much for having this really important conversation today. So, so let's begin with this double hammerfall. Let's just put it that way. You had the ravages of the pandemic in aged care facilities in 2020. You had the release of the Royal Commission in 2021, both of which should be enough, I believe, to shake us out of our condition of social or cultural forgettingness of our obligations to the elderly. Why, why is it that you think that it's maybe taken two events as dramatic as these to bring us to that condition of recognition of realization. And I don't really know if we have reached that point, to be honest, yet. So when we think about the final report of the Royal Commission and what is happening now in Victoria, it's really important to think about how we perceive and see older people, particularly those who are frail. So the recent cases in Victoria aged care facilities and the fact that 
at the start of this fourth lockdown, residents in 29 aged care facilities had not been vaccinated against the virus is a case in point of not only our lack of understanding as a society of the systemic problems that are affecting our older Australians, particularly those who are vulnerable and live in aged care, but also this idea that even when they are prioritized, they are not really prioritized. So, so this week, the government was saying 100% of facilities in Victoria had been vaccinated, but then only 57% of residents had. This is a dangerous mess. There's no reliable data. The ABC was reporting that it seems that more than a third of older people in aged care facilities have not been vaccinated in Australia. So frail and vulnerable older Australians and those who care for them, aged care staff, are not valued enough, even when they seem to be prioritized. Again, we don't even know how many aged care workers have been vaccinated, as the government seems to have no idea. It seems it was 9%, maybe 12%. We really don't know. Mm. Well, part of that was the mechanism of vaccination, though, wasn't it? That um, it wasn't automatic that aged care workers would get vaccinated along with the residents and they could, in some cases, were required to um be left to their own devices to get vaccinated. And so how do you track all that, particularly with the transient workforce, et cetera? So it's, it's kind of built into the very design of the rollout, um, at least as it was finally expressed, um, that was going to be impossible to keep track of those numbers. Exactly. We now know that aged care staff members had to fend for themselves. They had to procure and secure their vaccination. We know that they, as you mentioned before, that they are a workforce that is casualized, underpaid, undervalued, overworked. It's really hard to leave facilities because facilities are also really understaffed. So this is a huge problem. It is a huge systemic problem. And we had time to prepare for this. This is not something that happened last month. We had time to prepare for this rollout. We just didn't do enough. And I think we didn't do enough because, again, we are experiencing what we call structural ageism, which is this age-based discrimination that is so embedded in our institutions, in our policies, in our practices, that yes, they are vulnerable, but maybe not vulnerable enough. Or Mm. yes, they are prioritized, but maybe not really prioritized. And so the findings of the Royal Commission into Aged Care were confronting and shameful and show failures to act but also failures to not act enough. And this is what we've done again. We are not acting enough. Can I ask you though, Barbara, it's easy to stand back at a distance and observe that the rollout of the vaccine into aged care has failed, has not met its targets, has really been a disaster. It's harder, at least I've found it harder, to get answers on exactly why. So... I understand it's sort of easy to say, well, it was the federal government's job and they failed. But I don't know the role of individual aged care providers in this, whether or not their systems have failed and there's been vaccine available and they haven't been able to roll it out effectively 
or they haven't been up to the logistical task of it because vaccinating a lot of people is actually a more complicated thing than Luddites like me might imagine, that you just rock up and stick a needle in. It does, it's a mm-hmm. bit more complicated than all of that. So it, maybe it's just a paucity of publicly available information to help us make these sorts of assessments. But where, where exactly has the failure been and how would we go about figuring that out? Mm-hmm. I think we can see different levels here and different layers. The information that we have available, which again is not reliable, so we really don't know who to trust and how to actually have an informed conversation about this. The information that we have, for example, regarding the distribution of the vaccines is that it was based on contracting private private, yeah. private contractors. Without much of a history to, of delivering that kind of thing. Exactly. Without yeah. an understanding of aged care and the issues that we have to face when we think about infection control and all the other aspects around living in aged care, particularly for a very vulnerable population. So... First of all, we just have even lack the information to actually have a very informed understanding of the failures. The other thing that I think is important to understand is that the providers, aged care providers and aged care companies are saying that even when they tried to access their um, vaccination or to a tender to actually have the ability to vaccinate their own aged care staff members and residents, it was very complicated. A lot of paperwork, it was just impossible to go through. We also have aged care providers saying that there was a failure in public communication between the government and their uh, and themselves in terms of what was available and how they should go around and about this particular type of rollout. Then we have the government saying that, well, around 85% of older residents in aged care have consented to the vaccination, but we have the other 15% that have not. Again, this is very confusing. This has been questioned and challenged by aged care facilities, but we also need to understand how they are asking for consent. Around 70% of people in aged care have a cognitive impairment or have a neurodegenerative disease such as dementia. How, how are we asking for consent? Are we using standard ways of asking for consent? And what about those residents with no family that have no one really to advocate or support them? So there's a lot of different aspects here that we need to break down and deconstruct, not only in terms of public communication, the strategy, but also understanding of what's happening in aged care. So earlier this week, for example, it seems that the government was reporting uh, that aged care staff members only around nine or it was 12 percent have been vaccinated. But they don't even really know how many aged care staff members are there. The numbers that they were using were from 2016. It's about communication. It's about support. It's about understanding the contexts. But it's also about, as you were saying before, this idea of the common tragedy. It is a system that is already so under stress that if we don't really think about how to work with this existing system, we just add, we just amplify um, the, the problems and the weaknesses of the system. Barbara, you raised the really important issue of consent and just how complicated, especially in these circumstances, especially when family aren't as immediately present to the residents as we would hope that they would be. Consent becomes a very, very, very difficult, extremely complicated issue, something that takes time. 
something that requires not just tact, but also it is ultimately the humanity, the dignity of the person that is being properly regarded when consent is being sought. But it just strikes me that one of the things, one of the problems surrounding aged care and the way that we think about it, and I also wonder if this doesn't go back to one of our earlier questions or one of our earlier points, aged care increasingly seems to be viewed as a problem that needs to be solved. And that easily elides, slides over into the idea that elderly people are problems that need to be solved or need to be managed. And therefore, this problem is a problem that we are happiest with, quote unquote, we are happiest with when we hear the least about it. Uh, And it just strikes me that maybe one of the reasons that the rollout didn't happen with the efficiency and, and therefore with the necessary time, with the precaution, with the tact that was required Uh, is because things didn't seem urgent. Therefore, time didn't seem to be of the essence. Therefore, the issue wasn't front and center of mind. Therefore, it wasn't something that we were having to think about. Whereas, again, I, I guess one of the moral problems surrounding our care of the elderly is that we do slip so easily into a condition of cultural forgettingness, that we we are happiest with aged care facilities, with the care of the elderly, when we hear the least about it. And that just strikes me as a, as a kind of perversity of our time. And then once the problem does come to the surface, we want it dealt with quickly. We wonder why this didn't happen yesterday. And it's that kind of rush to get things solved that can perpetuate further abuses, like the lack of acquiring consent. That's a really important point. We see that lack of urgency, but also kind of an indifference to not only the failures of aged care, despite prior reviews, but also our understanding of frail older people in our societies. And as the Royal Commission noted, aged care has often been treated by the Australian government as a lower order priority. And this also reflects broader societal views Aged care is also treated by our society at large as a lower order priority. During the pandemic, we saw, for example, narratives surrounding older people as all vulnerable, all frail, all disposable. We kept hearing in the news from our friends on social media, oh, they died, but they were in their 80s, like they didn't have the right to live anymore. Uh, We now hear and continue to hear this generational blame game, oh, boomers don't want to get vaccinated, or it's all on the boomers and so on, while we actually have no robust evidence to support that that is the fact. And if it is true, then the problem is not with the individual, but it is a structural problem of public communication. So it's really important to think about how we as a society think about old, being old, think about aging. We are a society obsessed with being and looking young. I mean, what is the best compliment that someone can generally give you? Mm. I usually ask my friends this and they say- You don't look your age. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. That That you look younger or, oh, that you're young at heart. There's nothing wrong with an old heart. But because we see aging as a problem, as a cost, it is really easy to forget that aging is also an opportunity. It means that we are living longer. I mean, 200 years ago, life expectancy was below 40. In 2019, it was 72 years. So we're living longer, and that is an opportunity for us as well. 
the increasing life expectancy is an indicator of human and social progress. But we tend to see, again, older people and aging as something really negative. And older people are sometimes viewed as all the same or they are seen in two negative extremes. They are either too frail or vulnerable or they are too irresponsible and greedy. Think about property wealth and franking mm. credits, right? Mm. It's like there's nothing in between, but most older people are in between. Or then sometimes we have that really toxic positive view. The person looks old, uh, but look at all their achievements. Or they look old, but they've re reached and accomplished so much. They look good despite their age and so on. I mean, let's not even think about the billion dollar anti-aging cosmetic industry. So, so I think that analysis is fine and, and there's a lot of truth in it. I just fear for how far we can extend it into mm -hmm. a particular question like the failure of a vaccine rollout plan in aged care because the mere fact that it was declared a priority says that mm -hmm. this was part of the reckoning of government. And I wonder if in order to do this properly, we need to somehow engage with those inherent complexities that mean that a rollout was always going to be a difficult thing to do. So the different kinds of service providers, um, the fact that we were in a country that had no COVID really, and so mm -hmm. the prioritisation of flu vaccines, which seems actually a perfectly rational assessment because that is the greater risk to the population of aged care facilities um, than COVID in an environment where there is no community transmission, and then that risk profile suddenly flips. Um, well, I don't actually know. Has it flipped? I, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'd need to go figure that out. But you could argue that it's suddenly flipped. In other words, there are inherent complexities here that say to me that even with, with the best intentions in the world, you would have run into all kinds of problems. So what I'm interested in trying to figure out is how do you tease apart those things? How do you figure out which bits are genuinely a form of cultural or ideological neglect and which mm -hmm. bits... Um, uh, those things where we have to be mature enough as a society to reckon with the, the devilish complexity of what's going on here and that there will be tragedies even in spite of best efforts and even best endeavours. Yes, but there haven't been any best efforts, right? So, again... No, I think that's too what, black and white is my point. Like oh, I, okay. I, 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 don't, I see what you're saying. I, right. I, don't th I don't think you can just say, well, it hasn't been best efforts, therefore it's all rubbish and it's all about... Um, there have been efforts. I just don't think there have been the best efforts. And I think that's different. Things are not black and white indeed, but they are deep structural issues that we need to think about. And ageism and structural ageism is one of those dimensions. Yes, there are logistical issues around the rollout. Yes, there are difficulties in rolling out the vaccine in a way that reaches everybody. But we did have time to prepare. We had a national plan. We have, again, to really bring in together those different sectors, the, the aged care sector and the families, the older people. We just didn't even integrate them in those discussions. So, again, I do think that it is not black and white, but there are some things that are so clear to see that we don't really need to go into a, a very sophisticated analysis of what happened. There's failures, there are different levels of failures, but the underlying issue or the element that is, we can see across all those those different layers and dimensions has to do to how we treat older people, frail older people 
and the structural issues of the aged care system. As you were saying, the, the pandemic has been the great audit. It has been amplifying inequalities and showing us failures. And so I don't think we can really distinguish what's, what is happening in terms of the vaccination rollout with what the Royal Commission identified and with our broader societal understanding of aging and frailty and older people. You're listening to The Minefield. If you've just joined us, Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Our guest today, whose voice you probably just heard, is Barbara Barbosa Nevesh, who's a senior lecturer in sociology at Monash University. Barbara, I'm really look. I'm 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 really glad that the two of you have kind of insisted on this point of complexity. Um, one of the things that we haven't touched on, though, which just seems to me to be at the heart of the complexity of it, and yet it's also one of those historical mistakes that it seems to me that we have to acknowledge, and then equally acknowledge that it's going to take an, a long time to undo this particular mistake, and that's the centrality of private or for profit providers of aged care in this country. I mean, this goes back to certain revisions that were made to the, uh, in 1997 to the Aged Care Act. It reflects the fact that uh, aged care has gone out of the purview of states as, and has become part of the responsibility of the federal government who themselves have, uh, have outsourced it to private and some for-profit providers, not all, but some for-profit providers, a good many. It just strikes me, and, and well, we, we've talked about many times on this show, whether there are certain aspects of what might be called the goods that we must hold and therefore preserve in common. Are there some goods that should never be in the ambit of the profit motive that must be kept safe from the demands of profit making. And it just strikes me that if there, I mean, I think housing is one of them. I think aged care should absolutely be kept safe from anything resembling the profit motive and everything that goes along with that. Is that part of the complexity of this matter that must be acknowledged, that must be named? And if so, what can we begin to do to solve that? Mm. That's an, another very complex question, but um, what we know is that according to the Royal Commission, if we look at a range of measures of quality and residence outcomes, government-run residential aged care facilities perform better on average than both not-for-profit and in particular for-profit aged care providers. The research that we have has also been showing that quality in residential aged care services correlates with size. And this means that on average, small residential services, fewer than 30 beds, perform better than larger services, which are the majority of private services. So the larger services are the majority of private services offered in Australia. So we really need to ask ourselves, first of all, what are the for-profit providers offering that we need what do they offer that is better or that fills a gap in the care that public and not-for-profit can deliver? So I think these are important questions. Then if we as a society see value in the for-profit sector, then we must have stronger regulations. We have to have systems of 
monitoring, transparency, accountability. Again, the whole system needs an overhaul. It's not just the private, but we do need to really think about how we are privatizing. We need to understand what we are privatizing, how and its consequences. For example, something that is really interesting to see is that there's no clear statement in the Aged Care Act of the basic responsibility of approved providers to ensure that the care that they are delivering is safe and of high quality. There's no definition of what high quality means and the quality standards that we have in aged care do not match the ones that we have, for example, in healthcare. Mm. Yeah, see, I, I'm really torn on this whole question, Scott, mm. because, I, in fact, I probably have even made exactly the argument that um, you are suggesting here that privatisation and profit-making within this sphere shouldn't happen. But the problem with that is it really depends on what it is you think that private and for-profit service provision can achieve. Um, would you say the same for something like education, for example? What would you say about the fact that there would be, and I think in aged care there are, lots of private for-profit providers that do an outstanding job precisely because mm -hmm. that's what they are and so they can't, they, they, in other words, public service provision can be subject to neglect and failing standards too. Of course it can. And then, of course it can. And then it becomes an even bigger problem, right? Mm -hmm. So is the question not so much a one of for profit or not, but rather regulation or not, and to what extent? And if the regulation that is required to deliver an excellent product, a product that is worthy of the service that's being provided, if that is so expensive that it becomes impossible to make a profit, well, I guess that answers your question. But otherwise, it doesn't. And then I, I think the bigger question becomes not so much the mechanism by which this is all funded, but to what extent are we as a public prepared to fund it? Because it's one thing to say this needs much more money, and it clearly does, right? I mean, everyone agrees with that. Even the federal government implicitly agrees with that by chucking a whole lot of money at it in the last budget, whatever form that will take. And I'm not sure what form that will end up taking. So clearly there needs to be a whole lot more money. But if, I, if you were to sit down with a fiscal conservative who would say, okay, so where are you taking money out? What service isn't crucial enough that you would want to fund it to its, relevant, its necessary capacity? Then you'll probably find you're in a much more difficult situation, right? So I, I'm just a bit wary of throwing out the whole for-profit model. I think there might be I – think, I think the better answer might be to do with what's required – of those who enter that state in, in, in the same way that we do with education, right? You can, you can run a private education facility, but there are certain things that are required of you. In, you have to teach the syllabus. You, like there are certain mm. things that are simply demanded of you. And if you don't do that, then you can't run the facility. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, well, Ed, I, I, I agree. And I'm really, I'm, I'm eager to hear what Barbara has to say about this, but I guess just to make one very, very quick point, I guess the disanalogy with education is what strikes me most. Um, because if we really were going to give aged care the proper societal moral commitment that it's owing, uh, it's not just staff levels and staff training. 
It's also something like attending much more carefully and in a much far more radical way to things like architecture. I mean, it's no wonder, it's no wonder that aged care facilities seem increasingly to resemble something like prisons or detention That's centers. not a public-private situation. Well, no, I, I, I Have disagree. you seen some public buildings? <laughs> yes, of course I have. Of, of course I have. And I am saying that there, of course, has been bipartisan and has been private and public uh, um, uh, neglect and, and lack of attendance. Of course that's right. But I'm saying that what would in fact be required here to bring it up to a requisite moral and societal standard is of such a nature that it's going to require something beyond what the private sector can in fact manage. Because we're also thinking about things like not just not just sort of amenities and environs, not just architecture, but also things as simple as food, things as simple as 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 giving facilities the kind of I don't know quite how else how to say this. I'm I'm drawing here on the poetry of Elizabeth Jennings, which I've always kind of loved. We need to restore a degree of mutability, of changeability, of breakability, of reality uh, to to aged care facilities, such that everything isn't reduced to the diktats of sterility, of immutability, of unbreakability, and therefore of unreality. So it seems to me that these are all high aesthetic, moral, and cultural demands that register the depth of our obligations, uh, that recognize the dignity and the humanity of those who are being cared for. Yeah, but and the, that's there's far no sign, beyond... There's no sign yeah. that a public system would be better at delivering that or that it's even contemplating that. Like your critique is fair enough. But the mechanism for responding to that critique, I don't, I don't understand. Yes, but for there to be top-down driven change, which is the only kind of change I think that could do the job here, that is better taking place in the public sector than it is within the private sector. All right, Barbara, you have to decide mm-hmm. who gets the, uh, who stands on the <laughs> I'm podium. I'm not deciding anything. I'm just giving you data. <laughs> uh, according to the data that we have, again, measures of quality are better in public uh, run residential aged care facilities. This is not to say that there's no outstanding for-profit private aged care facilities. Yes. Again, the problem here, and I think I probably tend to align more with the regulation side, is again, the lack of regulation. Just to give you an example, residential care providers receive approximately $12 billion in Australian government care subsidies, but there is no specific requirement on residential aged care providers to spend any portion of the money that they receive on care. Mm. For Just to give you an example. So I think the regulation is really important. I, I as, as a social scientist, it's really hard for me to, to, to share a personal view because I follow the, what the research, what the data is showing me. Again, as I said, and as you were saying, Wally, there's outstanding for-profit providers, but the data that we have shows that the government-run residential aged care facilities perform better, have better indicators of quality. I do mm. believe that with regulation, these can change. Well, it's because they're, they're better regulated and there are fewer of them. Exactly, exactly. So if they're you extended that across the whole country in every home, what would happen? Mm-hmm. Again, it's all about regulation, but also accountability and oversight. And we can't just throw money at things without a plan, a plan mm. that includes Again, regulation, monitoring, accountability, transparency, but also 
the voices of older people. Older people have, have been excluded from this conversation, yeah. from all these conversations that we're having. And we mm. need older people, particularly older residents that live in aged care facilities to also have a voice. My job as a sociologist working in this field is to amplify their voices, but there's so much I can do. Really need to integrate them in these conversations about how we design aged care communities. And as Scott was mentioning, we also need to go beyond the aged care facility as this institutional setting. We know that living settings affect our quality of life, our well-being, our sense of personhood. My participants, my research participants in the studies that I conduct in Australia do mention a lot of times that they live in a prison. Uh, we have in sociology a term for this, it's called total institutions. My research participants mentioned, for example, that they feel like inmates, uh, they use this language, inmates, prison, they can't escape um, because they feel like they have no control or agency in relation to their environment. They have to live according to a very strict routine. It's very standardized. Breakfast is always at the same time and lunch and dinner and so on. Mm. There's an imposed social routine. They have to go to bed early, which for some of them is horrible. In some units, they can't even have their own kettle. Uh, they can't have a romantic relationship in the facility. They always have the same activities, same social activities, bingo, and so on. So again, we need to rethink aged care beyond the aged care setting or the standard aged care setting that we have in mind. We know that most older people want to age in place, so they prefer to age in their homes. And sometimes that it's just not possible. Some of my participants moved to aged care because they felt lonely at home, because they couldn't care for themselves, because they didn't feel safe by themselves. So we do need aged care systems that are diverse and that match the diverse needs of older people. But what we have now is the one size fits all. And we know it is not working. Yeah. And what I would observe is that these the themes that we've got to here, you'll never get to via the mechanism of COVID. Right, of how do you prevent outbreaks? Mm. It, it has to be a much bigger conversation than that, which mm -hmm. for the moment is the entry point. Um, alas, we're at an end and taking your words to heart, Barbara, given none of us are old enough to be in an aged care home, we should probably shut up about this now. So thank you very much for speaking to us um, and for being our guest and lending us your expertise as we try to navigate this. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's Barbara Barbosa-Nevesh, who's a senior lecturer in sociology at Monash University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now concluded, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.